they realized, well, if we don't need all this flexibility, should really build a product that is, is more focused and therefore simpler and, and more cost effective. Hi folks, welcome into HashMap on Tap. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Kelly Coleffel and I am exceptionally pleased to be joined today by James Weekly. James is co-founder at Omnata, where they are building enterprise integration for the modern data stack. Prior to starting Omnata, James held roles at places like Honeysuckle Health, NIB, and Diamond. We'll get into that with him. James, first, so hi, welcome into the show. I got to ask, what are you drinking today? Hi, Kelly. I'm very happy to be here today. It's 9 a.m. in the morning here in the um, east coast of Australia, so I'm drinking a white Russian. Normally, I would probably go for either a red wine or a dark beer, like a stout or a porter. But in terms of morning drinks, not that I do that too often, but you know, I was exposed to the idea of a white Russian through the film The Big Lebowski, which probably a lot of people have seen. It's a bit of a cult classic. So it's Kahlua vodka and milk. Just realizing milk's probably not a great drink when you need to do a lot of talking. You know, it kind of makes you need to clear your throat. Well, it does for me. So hopefully that doesn't get in the way. Is there, what's your, what's your mixture on Kahlua to vodka to milk? Is there a, what's, what's your formula that you like? Yeah, not, not too much vodka, to be honest. I, I like the taste of Kahlua. I think vodka is really there just to give it a bit more, bit more power, but I'm not a huge, like I'm generally not into really strong spirits anyway. So mostly yeah. just the Kahlua for the taste and the milk just for the texture really. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're coming into us today from, uh, the, uh, from Australia, right? That's right. Yeah. I'm in, based in Newcastle, awesome. which is yeah just north of Sydney on the East coast. You're right on the coast. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm I'm so it's not 9 a.m. here. It is late afternoon, early evening. So I I am you gave me a little preview on on what you're gonna drink. Always let the let the guests choose. So I'm trying to match that. I did my best. It's not exactly a white Russian, but I'm gonna call it a vegan white Irish Russian. <laughs> <laughs> so I had I did not have any Kahlua, but I did have Bailey's. So that was okay. my that's my I, that was my Irish uh, coming into this. I used Tito's vodka. Uh, the vegan side, I didn't use heavy cream. I used a plant based half and half called Ripple, which actually I use in my coffee okay. and tea a lot. And then threw in an espresso as well, just to just wow. to kick it off. That that yeah. actually, yeah, you might be onto something there. That's quite a mix. I do <laughs> I do like Bailey's actually. I used to make my own Irish cream a long time ago. So, yeah, yeah very I, nice. I think I kind of like you. I think I was a little heavier on the Bailey's, so that mm. that really does add a, a nice flair in there. So, mm. well, cheers to a to a great show. Looking cheers. forward to talking some data with you, James. Why don't you kick things off and Take just a moment. I always like to understand how you got into technology overall and then kind of where you are as you're in your current role as co-founder at, at Amnata. Yeah, sure. So I, I grew up in a, a rural part of inland Australia. I guess if I had to think of an equivalent in the US, um, maybe like Texas, but probably more like Tennessee, kind of um, near, yeah. near our country music capital, if that helps for the demographic. But much less populated. So the town I was born in had like 10,000 people. And then where I actually grew up was just a couple of hundred people. And I was always, you know, hugely interested in tech from a young age, you know, programming and gaming. I actually, I heard your previous guest, Arpit, mention Prince of Persia, which um, took me straight back to that golden era of PC gaming. Back, you know, also when I had a lot of spare time uh, as a kid. You're so, talking about Ar uh, Arpit with Appsmith? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he mentioned that yeah. that same period. So, so, um, did, so did you have a you had a favorite uh, game during that time? Yeah, that that whole era. I mean, Prince of Persia. I actually I did play that all the way through. But yeah, anything from that that sort of mid '90s um, when when gaming first hit the the PC yeah. market. I mean, it's there's just so many to choose from. We always had some hand-me-down PC from a, a friend or family that I met, I could play around with. But my family were farmers, so I was, I was very lucky to grow up in that part of the world, but it probably isn't a really obvious place to get exposed to tech. But I would say, like, the farmers I, I knew were very much these kind of technical generalists. So, like, each farm is like a small family business, and for better or worse, there was a lot of DIY 
approaches going on to things you know most of them knew a bit about mechanics and electronics and metalworking and would would kind of build and maintain a lot of their own equipment so when it came to like personal computers in the 80s and 90s there was this actually this inherent interest particularly within my family my grandparents bought a commodore 64 i think to do bookkeeping or some excuse like that but that's where i first encountered coding uh, on that platform and then uh, i remember in the 90s um, they were converting the farm to irrigation so they could grow cotton and they had all this earth moving and survey equipment i remember my uncle wrote this program in turbo pascal that they could enter in their survey measurements and it would calculate a plane and tell them where to like cut and fill the paddock and and so, yeah, I guess the reason I say that is kind of that was my earliest impression of computers, you know, that yeah. individuals could build some pretty cool things, really like change the way something is done, like make it way more efficient. And I think yeah. that's kind of been a, a like a long influence for me throughout my career, just that that approach to it. Did you uh, Did you build anything in Pascal back in that period? Just like really basic kind of games i would often try and build games or something interactive like that i don't i was probably too young to think of business applications yeah but yeah just just whatever i mean also at that time you know there was this whole magazine community where they would have like example programs you could write i don't remember any exact ones i remember trying to build a maze game in basic where you could sort of navigate through this ascii art maze um that was that was probably something I tried at the time. I remember modifying a game, actually, the old, um, you remember Gorillas in Q-Basic? Like two gorillas yeah. throwing bananas at each other. I remember modifying. What was the name of it? It was called Gorillas. No, <laughs> or, I don't know Gorilla, that maybe. Uh, look, I'm way older than you are, so <laughs> I was I was probably on to something else at that point. But uh, no, I don't remember that one. I worked out you could, I could see where they set like the explosion radius in the source code and i remember just like going yeah. through and changing it that was really cool i, I was going to ask too what so you mentioned that uh, i think you said it was your grandparents transitioning from a previous crop to, to cotton what was the previous crop and, and was that was cotton then the most was that the primary at that point yeah i think before that it was like cattle uh, mostly oh, okay uh, but yeah that area of of where we were sort of became recognized as good cotton growing country and so i think a lot of people were were turning to furrow irrigation it was the same time that you know water licensing was coming in and they had to figure out what long term they could do and so yeah turning it from just kind of grazing land to sort of just more crop like cotton kind of made sense mm -hmm. for them yeah so i don't i don't remember all the details but that that was I do remember sort of helping out on the farm quite a lot growing up. Well, there are, I mean, just in that industry alone is for a whole nother show, I guess, but I, I would say on the agriculture tech side, a lot of companies focused in that space right now. You've seen mm. it over the last, you know, five to 10 years, even the big guys, uh, you know, the John Deere's of the world spending a lot to um, make major moves in data and data monetization. So maybe that's another uh, show we could do uh, at some point yeah. and talk about ag tech. I'm, I'm, I'm into ag tech. I've never really worked properly in the field. But I, I I do have this innate interest in it, and I have kind of followed along a few companies that are doing some cool things. So yeah, it's this whole whole other world, and some really really genuine efficiency gains, like that, yeah. just quite game changing for a lot of a lot of areas. But yeah, yeah. I agree. Could do a whole 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 other episode. I know. So we were talking before the show, you and I, I believe, met at probably the last Snowflake Summit uh, mm. prior to prior to pandemic. And I don't believe at that time, maybe you had already started. I'm not at that time. I, I can't remember. But take me through the decision process when it happened in that was it 2018, 2019 time frame. How did you go from, OK, I have this idea, I have this concept making it a reality. What really inspired you to uh, to get I'm not a going? Yeah, so. It was around 2016 or 2017, actually, when I I was working as an architect at NIB, which is a, a publicly listed health insurance company. And it was during that period where I, I ended up with a primary focus on data and analytics, even though that wasn't my, my main background. But this 
this was what led to us being one of the early Australian customers of Snowflake. And I think the first health insurer globally on Snowflake as well, uh, around, I think, 2018 or so. That was also when I started writing some early open source tools in that Snowflake community. And yeah, I did go. I did go over to the first. It was, I think, the first and the last um, in-person uh, summit for Snowflake. But that was a really, yeah, that was definitely a, a big period for the lead up to Omnata because, you know, it was this, like, aside from data platforms, I guess my role was a little broader about how the modern data stack fit into the broader enterprise because we were migrating our core insurance platforms onto various SaaS and IaaS, AWS mostly, and, and Salesforce and things like that. So, but in the, in the data space, I was often, I often found myself explaining to a lot of incumbent vendors why we no longer wanted to manage their application ourselves. And, you know, it was that period where they were really, like the data world hadn't really embraced SaaS properly yet. Like they would want to have a cloud offering, but it would be like a AWS EC2 or something that, that you still had to manage. And a lot of them hadn't really rethought from the ground up what a SaaS offering or like a SaaS offering really means for the whole product. Um, I very quickly realized Snowflake was one of those few companies early on that really got it. Like they not only had this great new cloud native architecture, but it was also simplified as well. So, you know, instead of just shifting onto new hardware, um, it's actually a lot less effort to run. So, you know, you know, that team of people that used to keep the lights on the old warehouse, you know, looking at disk space and indexing and all those things, we actually didn't want people doing that anymore. And that was often the struggle when you, you move into the cloud is you're trying to actually not just not just get better uptime or or better infrastructure, you're actually trying to stop doing some of the old things that don't need to be done anymore. And that was my whole mindset at the time. But I had the job of, I came up against the challenge of enterprise scale integration in that stack. So I remember I was working with the data science team who were generating it, like we were using Databricks, doing a lot of predictive modeling and things. And they had generated a large data set as they do like 40 million records, I think, which was to predict the best time to call a customer during the week. And, you know, that that was the data set generated in Snowflake. didn't come from somewhere else, so it didn't have a natural home anywhere. I thought it should live in the CRM. That was kind of the nearest place it belonged. But when I spoke to the Salesforce admins about it, they said, you know, there's just, just no way. It would, it would blow our storage quota. Um, it, you yeah. know, you can't fit that type of volume into a CRM. And then I started to notice, you know, these in these types of conversations, people would always start to to do this dance to kind of engineer around the problem. You know, we could just aggregate. Real quick, why did you feel like it needed that needed to go in the CRM? What what was the the driver behind that? Well, the CRM was the place where the the contact center team were using were based, were, were more and more based, and they needed kind of visibility centrally you know this this whole customer 360 idea that salesforce pushed that that you shouldn't be kind of moving between like five different systems to help a customer you should you should that was their essentially their cockpit for making all decisions in and around customers yeah exactly and also that other systems that needed that information could get it from salesforce as a good repository they were they were sort of looking to drive a lot of the telephony automation out of that area as well. So like or things like dialer queues and who to try and contact next should be driven by that data. And, you know, having it just in Snowflake wasn't, wasn't going to work, but also like a large bespoke system probably wasn't the answer either. So, but yeah, people... People would start to do this dance to sort of say, you know, we could aggregate, we could load in just a subset of the data or like a daily count or something like that. Or, or on the other hand, the conversation becomes, oh, you know, this is a massive infrastructure project. You need like a MuleSoft or a Boomi or an Informatica mm -hmm. type of platform. It's going to be this big multi-million dollar project to just establish this foundation. And 
you know, that didn't really sit that well with me. Like I, I understand the value of those platforms and what they do, but I couldn't get past the fact that we kind of had a much simpler scenario. You know, we had our data in Snowflake. It was more and more collecting there. It was growing rapidly, and I just really wanted to plug Salesforce straight into it. Uh-huh. And, you know, they're both cloud platforms. I think they were both sitting in the same AWS data center in Sydney probably, probably right next to each other physically. But here I was as the customer kind of brokering the whole um, connection in the middle. So, you know, why do I even need infrastructure in the middle? That was the question I was I was asking. And I really felt like the integration world, like the, the companies building data integration platforms hadn't really considered what like the impact of having everything in the cloud really meant. And I felt like it should be more direct and native. So that was that was what inspired mm-hmm. me initially to, like in my spare time, it was late 2018. So probably actually this time of year, three years ago, um, was where in my spare time I built this native Snowflake platform connector for Snowflake. So it would work on any scale data set. It was real time. There was no middleware in the middle. You could just plug it straight into your Snowflake tables. But then it wasn't, you know, that was a while ago. Um, in 2019, I was still just working in my day job, really, having a lot of side conversations about it. Um, but I was also pretty busy. So we were setting up this joint venture with a US company. So there was a lot of travel and writing business cases. And ultimately, I joined that new company as as the CTO. And I'm, I'm, I'm not really good at multitasking or like focusing on multiple things properly. So Omnada was like a side conversation for a while. A very, very rough early version of it was actually listed on the Salesforce App Exchange for free for a while. That was kind of like that period. But then we started using that product in the new in this new healthcare analytics company I was at. And like, I thought it was fantastic, but I was also kind of biased um, because I had built it. So after an interesting year in in 2020, trying to sort of juggle both, I ended up, like I would would get up in the morning, talk to some people in the US mostly, and then go off to work. And I decided to just go full-time kind of late last year and take it to market properly. Yeah. Really interesting. And I, I, I want to come back to something that you said, James. You talked about Snowflake with how they really accomplished some interesting things as a SaaS solution. And I think of it in, in two aspects. You have a technical perspective to that, as you said, kind of taking that infrastructure effort out of the equation for, for me as a client. But also, I think the consumption-based uh, pricing model, pay for what you use. How much has using solutions like Snowflake, that pure SaaS, influenced how you are, whether you're, you have built or are building where I'm not as going. Yeah, quite a lot. I mean, we've changed the pricing model a few times and experimented with a few things. Initially, I, I wanted it to be a very developer led purchase that it would be, you know, start small and, you know, start with, with the, the cheapest possible amount of usage and make it grow over time that i don't think the industry really wanted that like everyone that looked at the product kind of wanted to talk about it and have this whole sales engagement so ultimately i think just the the space that it occupies in the market don't necessarily want to buy that way a lot of the time and you know it's it's um something where it requires some some thought on how to architecture and it's a fairly strategic decision even if you do start simple and you start at a low cost um, there's some salesforce licensing you have to buy so it becomes a salesforce conversation so yeah i mean that's in the salesforce product anyway Um, we we support zendesk now which is probably more suited to that pure usage you know you can start it at one user and you know pay the one user price per month and it's really really small but yeah going forward i see consumption based uh, having snowflake and and, you know products like snowflake as the central repository that you're you're accessing leveraging their billing models is really interesting to us so you know hopefully in the future 
you know, as Snowflake build out their broader story around their platform, that there'll be ways to to, to kind of work on the same mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, what they're doing with the data data marketplace is interesting. Like you can pay by yeah. the the query or 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 the um, number of rows. Did you uh, did you consider any kind of an open source based approach where you had an open source core and then you know monetized around additional features, or did you just want to go a completely different direction than that? Well, I like open source. Like a a lot of what I've built prior to that was open source, mm. but I was obviously employed somewhere, so that that kind of pays yeah. the bills nicely. I think with open source works well when there's when there's infrastructure to run and a lot of the successful open source companies you know what the value they provide is is kind of like the hosting and the the maintenance of the infrastructure we're very anti middleware like we don't want to be another big standalone system so our product philosophy kind of goes counter to anything that can be easily commercialized with open source yep. so like our Salesforce product runs on Salesforce, our Zendesk product runs on Zendesk. Mm-hmm. And so if we open sourced it, I'm not sure what's left for us to get paid for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I got it. It's tricky. It's tricky. I, I yeah. I'd like to I'd like to find a way, but nothing so far. Well, hey, let me ask you for for listeners that maybe are not as familiar with Omnata, haven't really dug dug in and, and figured out what you guys do. To me, it looks like you've got you've got several different areas that you address. And and you talked a minute ago, didn't go into a whole lot of detail, but I heard I think live querying to a cloud data platform that sounded really interesting. I'd love for you to talk about that. Maybe some of the use cases, and then and maybe I don't know. Maybe this terminology is off putting to you. I'm not sure, but reverse ETL where I'm able to. <laughs> push data from a Snowflake or a BigQuery out to an application. I'd love to hear your perspective on the use cases and the particular areas that Omnata fits. And then also is is reverse ETL, should we be talking about that differently? Is there a better term for that? Oh, yeah, lots to, lots to unpack there. <laughs> I, I mean, tech companies, I find they're a product of the environment that they were sort of founded in. So, yeah. I mean... Yeah, the the well known reverse ETL products. I mean, if you look at their their connectors, you know, clearly, or, or their founders even have really grown out of that the marketing and advertising domains, which is no coincidence. Like those those fields are massively data driven. Those kind of customers are early adopters of this kind of tech. So, no surprise that that's where the the early interest in in this comes from, and certainly. Omnata, I mean, our first product, which is Omnata Connect, is really an enterprise integration product. So like I said, it, it it's competing with some of the workloads that the previous generation of dedicated middleware products, the likes of Boomi and MuleSoft, can run. But those are very general purpose platforms. So, you know, they can connect anything to anything. You can build your own APIs. You can... You can you know, do all this stuff. Um, the downside being that they remain a lot more detail-oriented than they need to be. Um, so they tend to be managed centrally by like a technical team in IT. You know, we, we all know how that ends. So I guess that product has the same founding principles as Reverse ETL in the sense that the data warehouse is becoming the center of gravity. And, you know, Reverse ETL is like this subset of ETL really that's, focused on where where people are thinking now like you know they've they realized well if we don't need all this flexibility should really build a product that is is more focused and therefore simpler and and more cost effective so mm-hmm. like our difference really is that, that our first focus is how we displace that old anything to anything live um, connection the the enterprise integration pattern with the warehouse being the hub as opposed to the integration platform so that's Omnata Connect. That was our original product. It's like the vast majority of our customers or revenue is that product. Uh-huh. Omnata Push is, yeah, I, I'll concede that it's a reverse CTL product. It does hurt me a little to call it that because data isn't actually extracted from the outside uh-huh. by anything. It's pushed from the warehouse and it's a little newer. We launched it at the start of this year off the back of Snowflake external functions. So that's that's its primary mechanism. 
I personally had resisted moving into that space for a while. I didn't, it was kind of, it's kind of a busy space and I didn't think we had a lot new to add there. Um, and I, I worried it might be a distraction from the Connect product, to be honest. But my co-founder, you know, he's pretty persistent highlighting, you know, why we should think about it. And basically it came down to the fact that Reverse ETL is probably the most common starting point for these warehouse-centric patterns. So, you know, we would have conversations about Connect where people would say, you know, wow, absolutely, we will end up on that pattern, you know, but right now today we just have this lead score, you know, we just have this one field that we want to replicate, um, like copy into the CRM. So we, we decided to launch a Reverse ETL product that was, narrowly focused on the CRM space that we were in since that's probably the main integration market for the enterprise. We're still very anti-middleware. I mentioned before, like I didn't really didn't want to build a whole big new enterprise integration platform. So we only support Snowflake on, in that product because that's the platform where we were able to give this native experience. And that's where a lot of exciting stuff is coming. We, we have a DBT package so after you create the initial Snowflake integration objects, it's all managed as a DBT model within the pipeline, so not not in some outside system. So we, we're trying to, where Connect is native to the CRM, like our push product is native to the warehouses, and and that's that's the way we we think it should be thought of. Interesting. Now. Are you is the plan as you continue to go forward? You'll have you said Salesforce, I guess Zendesk from a service perspective is a plan to add things like HubSpot and other service packages or CRM packages to connect in the same kind of thing on push where maybe I had a big query or another cloud data platform. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, one of the challenges of, of being anti middleware platform is that you don't have this convenient banner that everything falls under like this this one thing that you log into and and everything's done inside of it mm -hmm. um which is a, it's a challenge with messaging the product i mean the the amount of effort it takes is is similar and like it's equally sophisticated but it's it's not it's kind of a suite of of smaller products by far the most common combination like the most popular combination is snowflake and salesforce um okay. kind of makes sense looking at the market but I mean, you could spend a lot of time on that combination and, and still have plenty of, of market. With Omnata Connect, like how exactly it works and what you can do depends slightly on the application. But fundamentally, in every case, it's always a direct live query to the data platform. It's always a bring your own data model, whatever you have in the in the in the warehouse and in the data platform is is what you're trying to recreate virtually on the inside the app and you always have hierarchical drill down which you sort of need because you're talking you have this problem of millions of records and you need some way to uh -huh. start from some customer centric thing and and drill out to something contextual so you need hierarchy in there so those two aspects are really critical kind of non-negotiable so if we can't make it work that way then we we can't really support the app having a direct query is really important because it means that we don't have any proxy layers or anything in the middle so we're not handling any data and honestly we wouldn't have been able to make most of the sales that we have if if we had infrastructure in the mix just because you know starting in the enterprise talking to like healthcare particularly government healthcare they they don't really want you handling their data <laughs> especially cool. if you're a, a early stage startup and especially if you're on the other side of the world. So um, that's pretty important. Salesforce is a very deep integration because it's quite a mature platform. So it's object level. You can use it throughout the whole platform. You can make lists and reports and automations and even in Apex code. You can do similar things with platforms like Dynamics 365 and ServiceNow, although we haven't moved on to those yet. With Zendesk, it's probably more like in the presentation layer. It's still drilling down contextually, but it's probably more of a presentation thing than a than an object level thing. Mm -hmm. In the in the early days, you mentioned being on uh, Salesforce App Exchange. Are you still there? Has that worked for you? Is it is it something? Is that a primary source of awareness for you? About uh, I'm not a. How, tell me how that fits into the overall. 
Yeah, we are still on the app exchange. I mean, it's part of being in the the ecosystem and it's really part and parcel of becoming an ISV partner is you go through the process of Salesforce, you know, they review your your business and your app and they do all the security stuff and then you can go on to the app exchange, but then you're you're also able to sell and have it kind of app exchange or not when someone installs a package they quite clearly tell you if it's like uh, an official approved like or like verified package or if it's just someone's code that's been compiled so yeah that that's kind of bundled in with the isv partner process the app exchange and that is the the way that people kind of install it initially in terms of our main source of leads i think it's I don't know if it's probably not a huge organic channel. I mean, it contributes to awareness and, and SEO to an extent, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of our, like the majority of our inbound interest has been people looking for something like what we do and finding us through a search or like an article that I've written or my co-founder has written and published. That's mm-hmm. probably our main channel. How long did it take you, James, to check those original boxes on the snow on the Salesforce uh, app exchange uh, to get certified in that and, and become a uh, first class partner? Yeah, it typically takes at least a few months. Okay, three or four months is pretty normal um, by the time you go through all those steps because it's a lot more than just um, you know if you look at it if you look at a like every every app store kind of has a slightly different model. It's a little bit like. You know, Apple and and Google Play are quite different. Apple's very much, you know, about about quality over quantity and and things like that. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, Zendesk for for example is very developer centric, like individual centric. So they're all about making it easy for somebody with an idea to turn it into like a a basic product. Whereas Salesforce is more a real kind of B2B focus and, you know, the starting point is they want to know your your go-to-market strategy, your business model, your pricing. They want to know all those details and actually kind of have a, have a conversation about that first. And then the app is really more of just a implementation um, detail. Um, so yeah. it's a longer, you know, relationship establishment with Salesforce. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they have this whole partner ecosystem. So they have, you get like partner support and, you know, people that you can can work with on the inside. So that that's probably the main difference. Okay. Is, there, is there a play to be had with the Snowflake uh, Partner Connect as well? Yeah, Partner Connect for sure is on our list. Okay. It's, it works really well for, I think, evaluating tools that plug into Snowflake generally, like BI tools that, you know, if you look at the list. And, yeah, there would be, like, there would be scope to kind of spin up, say, a Salesforce instance. You could probably do that and have someone Mm -hmm. kind of do a test drive on their own data. But then again, you know, it's often the, the Salesforce administrator who's kind of doing the work. So... It's usually some kind of partnership between uh, application support team and the data warehouse team. So maybe not as autonomous an evaluation as you would get with a analytics product. But yeah, definitely, um, definitely a, a good possibility. Okay. Hey, could you go over just real quick? What are some of the examples? You've talked a little bit about this, but some some tangible examples with companies or organizations that you're working with that are taking full advantage of, of your approach, the way you go about doing this with Amnata, and maybe some of the benefits they're seeing. I think that would be really interesting to hear. Yeah. So the the types of companies and the benefits really they both vary in terms of what they are. So the earliest production scenario I mentioned in healthcare was tele telehealth nurses providing care using Salesforce Health Cloud. So you know, they had a, hundreds of millions of healthcare records in Snowflake. So, I mean, there's an obvious saving of not having to build complex bespoke integrations out to these other systems. Um, but the other the other benefit, I guess, or differentiator is that 
this was a healthcare analytics company. So it wasn't just raw EHR data, um, patient data. It was also being modeled and analyzed in Snowflake. So that that's really where you see a lot of the benefit where, for example, HealthCloud is, is built on the FHIR standard for healthcare. So, for example, mm-hmm. a healthcare condition could be something real that a, like a doctor has diagnosed personally. Um, but there's also room in the data model for unconfirmed or provisional um, conditions. So like if an analyst's model predicts that someone is at a risk of a certain disease, that the data model can also accommodate that. So, you know, the fact that, you know, you had this this clinical data coming from elsewhere, but also really importantly being embellished or kind of um, added to in Snowflake meant that it was a great place to centralize that integration and you know you can very easily change your mind about the data model which is um something that is really big in data integration because i think the reason these projects often drag out is trying to get the perfect data model and people being scared to change their mind but if it's live queries you know you don't have to worry about what happens if you change it if you want to change add a field or take away a field or or fix up the data in a field that you realize, you know, was calculated wrong, for example. You don't have to, all these historical backfill problems being created. The other one in healthcare, which was pretty early on, was we were deployed as part of a COVID contact tracing center. So pathology data coming into Snowflake, the contacts were being traced in Salesforce. So we were sort of the glue in the middle of those. The, the benefit there being COVID was... You know, it needed to be built yesterday <laughs> was the the vibe. And it did come together extremely quickly, but it's also worked very reliably over the long term. So um, that was very validating that we were the ones that were the best option when time was critical, but also, you know, we didn't get ripped out later and replaced with something mm-hmm. different. It was actually, it's quite a good solution. Um, outside of healthcare, it's often customer service teams needing access to data from other systems uh, generally speaking like operations teams so we worked with uh, a company managing one of the main top level domains on the internet so they get abuse complaints they need to investigate um, about websites and things which they come in as salesforce cases but you know they have these malware scanners and things which providing enormous amounts of supporting information you know, scan results from from a certain web domain from, you know, in the last hour to see if a complaint is is legitimate and warranted. Mm-hmm. So they were able to converge this massive amount of, of data in Snowflake but also very easily link it by domain name onto a case. And, and that whole project really uh, was implemented by one person on their side um, building all the Salesforce side. So... Yeah, anywhere generally with with large sort of uh, adjacent data sets. Probably, probably my favorite though is a major cloud communications company that we work with that they sell on a usage basis. So they have all these opportunities in Salesforce that their reps have to maintain, and they have to report on 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 revenue. Like it's it's hard on the salesperson though because they have to provide a, an estimate ahead that has to be somewhat accurate and then they have to adjust it later for what actually happened. So we, with Omnata, they have opportunities in Salesforce side by side with the real historical data that's in Snowflake. And then they have forward projections that the data science team have built. So this one I think was cool to me because, you know, we often think of predictive analytics as being this totally autonomous thing. Um, this this problem is really a combination of statistical analysis but also human judgment. So, you know, there was this trend line going forward, maybe some external factors across the board that you can use to, to build this, like, revenue forecast per customer. But that gives the ref, reps a default value so they can move quickly through the list. But for some customers, there might be this critical factor that they don't that they only they know about. So maybe there's an acquisition coming, maybe there's budget pressures or something. So the reps could easily kind of move through the list and and override the value. So that that to me was kind of a fun use case. 
but generally the benefits like a time to value is is it success where other approaches have maybe failed for various reasons and also not needing to broaden the skills of your team so if you already have a data platform and you already have a crm the people managing those already are, are good to go you don't need kind of an integration expert to come in no, interesting. And I, I think earlier you'd said kind of a common technology theme underlying all of, all of this Snowflake, uh, Salesforce, probably uh, maybe Zendesk. Uh, but I noticed too that, and well, step back for a minute. To me, one of the biggest challenges for a company in the enterprise integration space or data integration space is how do I balance adding new features to existing capabilities that I have? Maybe my Snowflake capability or Salesforce capability versus adding another platform onto either side. Mm. So I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that because I did notice that you've got some capabilities with solutions like Rockset now, BigQuery, mm. other things coming along. Talk to me about how as a as a software development organization you balance new features to existing capabilities versus net new platforms. It seems like it'd be tough to me. It is. It is tough. Yeah, it's it's kind of a a mix of judgment call about where you think the industry is going, um, because you need to be slightly ahead or or on par with adoption, but then you also need to need to have access to a a, a market. So it is it is very tricky. Sometimes we will get just a direct feature request. That's often in relation to the use case that the customer may be purchasing. And for example, one that we added was multi-currency handling. Um, we had a customer who had their, their warehouse was all US dollars, but they had like people all over the world and they needed the Salesforce currency preferences to be applied. So we implemented that logic in the middleware layer. That was probably something I wouldn't have thought of myself that once it was pointed out, made a lot of sense strategically as something that others would need. You know, you want to be careful. We've certainly had feature requests where, you know, deep down I knew that there was probably only one customer who would ever want that. Um, so <laughs> that those ones are tough. But with Rockset, like we were early believers in, in Rockset and, you know, very early days for that company. But when, you know, I saw that there were startups that were specifically tackling real-time sort of high-performing data APIs. And there's a bunch of them around, the likes of Materialize and, and others, but Rockset was very um, SaaS-oriented. They've got a public API, like Endpoint, very simple to plug into. I mean, some people would see them... I mean, obviously, for example, BigQuery and Snowflake are direct competitors. But Rockset's kind of a different type of product. It's more for those high volume, low latency queries. So for example, like Snowflake's fine for uh, internal use cases, you know, for your like hundreds of staff or even thousands, but you, you wouldn't you wouldn't put it behind like a public website, at least not yet, <laughs> if you had, you know, millions of users. Whereas Rockset is specifically focused on very low like single digit millisecond latency for any type of sorting and filtering as opposed to complex analytical queries over a very large data set so that that's yeah. that's the differentiator and we see that the big challenge that i think a lot of people a lot of vendors in our space will acknowledge is this is the timeliness of data into uh, a cloud data platform you know, like if you're on a snowflake because of the pipelines leading in, you know, the freshness is, is maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes often. So often that's not an issue. Sometimes it is. So that's why we've, we've got that option. No, you mentioned, I mean, really interesting, I think, and I, I'm in complete agreement on this. If, if a company like Rockset that's making a public API available, I can't tell you how many times we're working with the client. Client says, yeah, we need to connect up so-and-so data integration tool. 
to this product we have, oh yeah, public API. There is no public API. It's behind the firewall. You've got to yeah. be a customer. And I think the way that you're describing Rockset approaches, I've had Vincat on the show, by the way, big, big fan of those mm. guys. That and then documentation. And I guess my question to you, James, is you look at how they approach public API, which you really like. Documentation, I think, is pretty good from what I've seen at Rockset. How do those kind of things, again, go into your thinking, into your design, into the way that you're approaching the market as it relates to Omnata? Maybe not the answer you're expecting, but we we started with a lot of documentation and then gradually chipped away at it, <laughs> not needing it. So, I mean, I'm 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 a fan of documentation for sure. The earliest version of Omnata Connect had no UI, so mm. we had this huge repository of like screenshots and things that the Salesforce admin had to battle their way through to go into all the different corners of the Salesforce admin console to do everything they needed to do to get the product to work like there's so many components in the mix to like the parameters for the connection and the credentials and the data model and all these other things so we we had this huge um, doc site but wherever possible i'm a fan of the documentation being incorporated into the product not as some you know menu item link but actually kind of a guided experience meaning that your reliance on documentation is minimal so for the salesforce products by now we we've invested more in the setup ui than the actual core runtime itself because salesforce is not their number one priority is not administrator experience um put it that way so there's a lot of um stuff to learn that we we actually wanted our product to take care of as much as that as possible so what was like five pages of click here type this click here select this we rolled that up behind our own um, lightning setup page and then had apis behind the scenes kind of creating all those things we were able to delete a bunch of documentation after that but there's always stuff that needs documenting that's not in that category so for example Uh overall architecture the security model for cyber folks to look at that aren't really part of the admin experience that we have to do uh, i'm a bit biased because I, I wrote a lot of the documentation but i think i'd give us a, probably an eight out of ten i'm not sure if my co-founder would agree but yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's a safe score okay. i think that's good that's good hey are you, are you able to hang out for a little while longer i know we're yeah, coming yeah. up against it that's okay, great. Yeah. great. I, I've got a few other things I, I would love to go over with you. Mm-hmm. Let me, really interesting, let me shift gears just for a second, kind of more on the business side. And think about, take us back to the early days. You said, hey, we got into Salesforce App Exchange and, you know, kind of not a full-time project at that point and, and really have moved it along. What have you learned from start to today about product market fit since you first founded Amnata? Quite a lot, actually. You know, this this is my first job that is much, much broader than just technology. I really underestimated uh, how hard it is to educate the market on something new. And, and by new, like I don't mean to suggest that we invented data integration, but as far as we know, we're one of the first to propose that Snowflake should be a live data store for enterprise systems. And you know, making making a few sales and having a few wins, implementation wise, can sort of feel like product market fit. Like it feels nice to have that validation. Um, but honestly, you know, Snowflake started out as a data warehouse, and you know, data. You will have noticed they've changed their language around that um, these days. But data warehouse carries a huge amount of historical meaning, and a lot of people object to the idea of a data warehouse becoming an operational data repository and so you know whether you like it or not that that perception impacts product market fit oh. at least initially probably the other challenge is you know people want to see some some proof of traction which is a bit of a chicken egg thing sometimes for a startup if you've raised some money you can maybe use that to inflate things a little bit like you know we've got an office and we got hired 10 people and all that um bootstrapped you have to get people to kind of overlook the fact that 
it's it's just a couple of guys with <laughs> with an idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was that was it. Have you have you thought about raising capital at this point? Or, yeah, or no? yeah. Like funding is it's a fascinating topic to me, really, especially as someone outside of Silicon Valley. Australian companies, tech companies, tend to be mostly bootstrapped, at least initially. I think that's partly a cultural thing. Like the financial success stories in Australia are really outside of tech mostly. So okay. we don't have this whole ecosystem or, you know, first-hand experience of, of seed to exit and, you know, cashed up ex-founders in the mix. So that's challenging. What's a typical model in Australia if it's not that? What is, what's, more, uh, what's more used by, by most companies? Well, yeah, but bootstrapping, like a lot of our, our tech companies are technology applied to a domain usually. Like they wow. will be, okay. uh, you know, there's a lot of um, fintech, for example. Um, there's a lot of tech that relates to primary industries, you know, things like farming and mining and, yeah. That those types of domains, it's not like tech. But you'd say in general, much more bootstrapping for longer periods of time than going out and raising and also you're saying very domain specific. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like we don't have the, I guess, the diversity of pure tech companies. We've got a big, mm-hmm. a couple of big headliners, you know, Atlassian and, and Canva and others that are based here. But, you know, they even like Atlassian is a good example, actually, they bootstrapped for a long time before they took on funding um, that they eventually did. So, I mean, for us personally, my co-founder and I, you know, we both left pretty well-paying tech jobs because we kind of just wanted to build this thing and take it to market and keep some control. So we're not we're not too, um, too worried about early fundraising. I guess for that reason, it currently kind of resembles a lifestyle business um but we aren't against fundraising by any means i think it's probably likely that we would raise around at some point we didn't want to be locked into producing a unicorn really quickly at such an early point to me i think all these new areas around the modern data stack will commoditize quite quickly so i'm not quite sure what that's going to mean Uh, we know that you know, the current cloud data platform adoption is really like tip of the iceberg. There's this huge, uh-huh. diverse enterprise cohort coming and Omnata have something compelling in that space already. So our our immediate priority for year one was just kind of bootstrap our way to like a basic modest foundation that we could build off, which we managed to do this year. Our next phase is more to complete our vision. It's tied to some roadmaps of other platforms. You know, we're pretty excited about what that will look like eventually, but, you know, that's probably the catalyst for for financing, whether it's equity or debt financing kind of depends on the timing and how far along we are, I guess. Okay. Really good. Sounds like if, if somebody did come knocking and, and said, hey, very interested for, you know, reasonable price and uh, certainly you, w- you wouldn't turn them down, definitely have a conversation. Mm. Huh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Let me ask you, when you look at, you know, where you were previously, and this, this is your first startup, right? Yep. Yeah. Was there anything that you brought with you that stands out from either NIB or, or Honeysuckle that you said, hey, I, I, I really like what, what we were doing there. I want to bring this into whether it be, you know, company culture or product approach or the way we approach clients and, and, mm. and so forth that you brought into Amnata? Yeah, I mean, there was obviously though the experience in those roles as a technical person kind of created the right frustrations or the right sort of identifying the needs directly. But I guess outside of that, probably the experience of leading teams, I think, has some parallels in startup life in that, you know, in leadership, there's lots of, you know, conflicting preferences. You know, you, you can't really you can't please everybody, I guess. And, you know, you just have to listen to a bunch of ideas and, and then decide for yourself and, and just navigate that course. And, and I've noticed in startup life, you get wildly different advice from, from in terms of everything, all from people who have been successful in different circumstances, advice on pricing and go to market and all those things and, and fundraising, all those aspects. So, yeah, I think, I think I'm, I've adjusted to the idea that you can't make the perfect decision. You just have to listen to a bunch of views 
try and place them where they belong or where they come from, um, but also just make a decision and and go forward. Yeah, if you try and if you try and sort of like come up with the ultimate average of all of them, it just doesn't work. Yeah. So far, has it been about what you expected in terms of the amount of effort, uh, work, energy, time put in? Is it, is it less? Is it more about what you expected so far? Uh, oh, it's a lot of effort, definitely. And, you know, the pandemic probably didn't help as far as things like our, <laughs> our kids' school um, closing and things like that, We're trying to balance um, mm-hmm. a lot more of your personal life um, than you expected to as a startup founder. That's tricky. Mm. And so that was a little unexpected. Had a few months of lockdown this year, which which yeah. effectively takes time away. I would say, you know, the thing that cost me the most time um, that was in hindsight kind of um, wasted, not in terms of a lesson, but in terms of how long it took me to, to learn it, was um, around the sales process for me. Or or not mm. having one really was the the problem. So I think most salespeople listening to this would probably laugh at how naive I was. But before my co-founder came on board, I had spent several months kind of being a little confused about, you know, I'd get these enthusiastic inbound inquiries from people similar to me in other roles, in other companies who seemed very, genuinely interested. You know, we'd chat. We'd agree on a lot of things. They'd, they'd look at, this, evaluate the software, not really run into any issues, but then kind of fade away and tell me that you know they they're waiting for the right opportunity and things like that. And um, so that was the reason I I started working with Chris um, in the middle of 2020. He sat in on a bunch of sales calls and he has tech sales experience from working at Tableau. So at first, I kind of found him uncomfortably blunt. Um, with people like uncovering their intent and you know their buying ability but he really helped me see that a lot of the inbound leads you know even though they were nice people genuine people they weren't actually always real buyers um and vice versa like some of the ones that i didn't think would really go anywhere actually had the sort of the makings of a good deal that did eventuate so i probably the big Mm -hmm. the, the biggest lesson there was like the mistake I made was assuming that everyone is like me. Everyone buys the way I do. And, you know, I generally don't spend a lot of time looking at a product unless someone's like needs it badly and there's like a direct need. Yeah. Um, as much as I like tech, I don't usually like kick tires too much, but a lot of people do. And that's that's the reality of sales that I had to learn. Yeah. I've, I think I've mentioned on the show before, but I mean, I'm, I'm such a, a fan of how HubSpot sells, which they really don't sell at all. Everything that you do with, at least for us, we've been a, been a customer of HubSpot for close mm. to five years now, and I've never gotten a sales yeah. call from HubSpot, not one. And our, our, uh, the, the ARR associated with, uh, with our account has continued to rise, 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 uh, every year without any sales. And if you've got a, if you got a product that is, uh, you know, you're doing a fantastic job with that. That need is met in the market. I think it's almost one of those things where you can just answer mm-hmm. questions. And and if you can get to that point where just answering questions and help getting fit, okay, what would be the best configuration for you, the best service level for you? I mean, that's the place you want to be. Because today, even today, when I you know reach out to HubSpot, it's hey, I need something else. It's not because they're you know pushing something else. Hey, look at our mm-hmm. latest and greatest. It's, Oh, I heard about this, or I saw your piece of content. You talked about content earlier. I saw this thing that you talked about. How can I get that? And uh, you know, it's probably easier said than done. There's not a lot of HubSpots out there, I guess, but you know, certainly something that we can all uh, strive for. I think is we're trying to figure out this balance between selling and and marketing and and almost just having a product that you know sells itself. Yeah, that's the dream, isn't it? To it is. not it have is. to force it onto people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know I've I've taken up way more of your time than what I, I had told you. Are are you able to do a quick lightning round with me just yeah. to, to wrap things up? Okay, yeah, sure. All right, let's do this. So five uh, fairly, I think, really easy questions actually. So uh, a technology you can't live without in your role at Amnata. I've got a few of those. Uh, so we work from home in different cities, so Slack is is very essential. 
and we don't have in-house designers so we we use canva quite heavily which is another aussie startup that i mentioned um Mm. i also love calendly because i've always hated back and forth time proposals Um, i do still feel like a little bit funny about asking people to use it i'm not sure if it's kind of a bit of a power move or not something something socially about it but I, i love the tech anyway and hopefully it becomes normal to just to yeah. point people at your Calendly. See, I at first because I use Calendly as well, huge Slack user too, and I I felt the same way at first. Is you know, is this so impersonal? Hey, just pick a time, you know, and and it's it's like I'm not paying enough attention to you. But I, I've gotten uh, it it like you said, it shortens that time to getting an agreement on when you can meet. So fast yeah, that uh, I've, I'm a huge fan of it. So I've put it as a little link in my signature, and I'm kind of, I even Slack it to to people. Hey, just grab a time, whatever you want, as long as it's open take it and uh and we'll go from there so yeah those are those are great tools only one i i've used Canva a little bit but it's i wouldn't say it's a regular part of the arsenal right now mm. definitely a fan very successful company by the way very, they have yeah they have done fantastically are they ba- they're based out of uh Sydney. australia yeah yeah that's what i was thinking yeah, yeah 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 all right second question time of the day that you are most productive that's easy it's um it's just after i've had a nap which is uh, <laughs> the middle of the day. I'm a prolific napper. Um, everyone what? who's worked with me knows that I'm a I'm big on naps. Is this a short power nap, longer, more rejuvenating? How, what's no, your What's your ideal? Incredibly short. So I, I'm a I subscribe to the Dali nap, um, Salvador Dali's kind of template, which is um, you 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 v- barely even fall asleep. So his thing yeah. was you hold us, I think, a spoon or something in your hand that's metal and you hold it over a, um, a plate and as you fall asleep you drop it and it wakes you up so you you're not supposed to properly you, you spend that just that period of going to sleep is kind of the important part and for me it's just an enormous difference like I it's a yeah. complete reset that I, I can't live without that is great. That's great. All right. Do you have a really go-to cook-at-home meal or takeout delivery meal that you and your family enjoy? Yeah, pretty seasonal. In winter, I liked slow-cooked meat, like a lamb ragout or a pulled pork or something like that. Summer in Australia is probably more more like barbecues. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, it kind of depends on the time of year. So the, the slow cooked meat, even in the winter, you do that on more of a smoker or barbecue, or how do you how do you? Prepare? I've just got a, a crock pot, like a slow cooker. Okay, got yeah. it. And reserve barbecue for the summertime. Yeah, it's more of a yeah. it's partly a social thing as well. Yeah, yeah. What about a favorite spot in your uh, neck of the woods in Australia, Newcastle, Newcastle area? Yeah, very tough question because I'm so spoilt for choice. You know, five minutes one way, I've got a bunch of good beaches. Some of that are like surfing beaches, others more like caves and rock pools. But in the other direction, we have Lake Macquarie, so you can sailing and kayaking and things. So, yeah, tough call. And then there's the Hunter Valley, so wine country, that's a little bit further away. I would probably say the beach, probably Caves Beach, is one of my favorites, especially with young kids. Um, and um, bushwalking at Glen Rock, which is a area sort of near the main part of Newcastle. Oh, now explain to me what bushwalking is. What, what does that mean? I think it's probably the same thing as like a trail, trail oh, walk. Okay. We just yeah. call it, we call it the yeah. bush instead of, the, it's just walking through a forest that's got a track and oh, very nice. hopefully something interesting at the other end, like a top of a mountain or a, a beach. Yeah. Okay. All right. Last question. Uh, is there another company that you've got your eye on that you're watching closely right now? Yeah, there's a company called Numenta that I've been kind of obsessed with for, I don't know, five plus years, who are, I've always been into AI, particularly generalized learning algorithms. Um, and these, this company, um, they follow like a biological approach. So trying to research how the brain works try and build something similar in software so you know the brain works very differently to like a von neumann machine like a computer a typical computer so they're they're really focused on how it's different how it stores information how it how it learns that to me is just fascinating 
Very nice. James, this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun. Great information on, you know, really getting us filled in and the audience filled in on what's going on with you. And I'm not a just an amazing story and, and really appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Great pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, for those of you that have not checked it out, we'll make sure and, and link up uh, Amnata, any other things that uh, James has got that might be interesting to you. If you're looking to live query operational data, Amnata Connect. If you are looking to push data from your cloud data platform out to your operational out applications, Amnata Push, check it out. We'll link everything up uh, in the show notes. Thanks everybody for listening in today. We really appreciate each one of you and would encourage you to subscribe if you haven't already to the podcast and send us any feedback and comments. We'd love to hear from you. We will see you soon on another episode. Take care. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap ONTAP page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.